hear from God. We continue with the book of Exodus. So I'm going to ask you to stand this morning. I promise I will not read the entire book of Exodus. But you can turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 14. I am having a momentary technical difficulty. Give me one second. actually start with our key verse for our entire series, which is John 3.16. So we're going to start there, but you don't have to turn there. I will read it to you, and then we will read from Exodus chapter 14, verses 10 to 14. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Exodus 14, 10 to 14. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Let us pray. Hide me behind your cross, Lord. May my words be your heart. You have told us you love us. Help us to know your love and live it every day of our lives. Amen. You may be seated. We Americans are really fond of a pull-yourself-up-by-the-bootstraps philosophy. We love stories of the poor child who becomes a mogul through hard work and perseverance. All the better if they never went to college, but learned everything they needed to know by the school of experience. We have even created Bible verses in our minds to underscore it. The Lord helps those who help themselves. Um, that's actually not in the Bible. Just a Wanted to point that out to you. But we say it as though it is. Or God won't give us more than we can handle. 
That is my absolute worst favorite one in all of the canon of non-scripture. The real truth is, our lives are often, if not always, more than we can handle. Scripture is actually pretty clear that we are hopeless and hapless and helpless on our own. The Israelites are a perfect example. This part of the story that we just read is the moment right before they cross the Red Sea. And it happens miraculously and as a further testament to the fact that they, in fact, did not rescue themselves. They couldn't. And God helped them anyway. God did what they could not even start to plan. But let's back it up a little bit and recap how they got to this place. We ended last week at Genesis, and we talked about Joseph and how he became the ruler or second in command in Egypt and helped the Egyptians through a famine. Well, 400 years have gone by since then, and as we begin reading in Exodus, the new rulers don't really care about some guy who lived 400 years ago, some foreigner who saved them from something. The new ruler, in fact, is pretty glad that the Hebrews are there because they have free labor at their fingertips. And they're kind of happy with that. They like having free labor. Some people have kids so that they have free labor. It's usually a benefit. The problem for Egypt is there are an awful lot of Hebrews. And as Pharaoh moves further and further from the Joseph and more and more toward what is going to happen next, he begins to be a little bit concerned about the number of Hebrews. Because you see, even though the Hebrews are slaves and they don't necessarily recognize it, Pharaoh begins to see that there's a possibility that if they actually planned an uprising, Egypt would be in big trouble. So, he starts killing off the Hebrew boys. It didn't really work out, um, and probably for um, future planning purposes, it may not make sense to kill off the stronger part of your labor force. Um, it really wouldn't have worked out in the long run anyway, but the midwives wouldn't obey, moms were hiding their babies, and finally Moses is born into this. This is the moment where Moses comes into the world. His mom puts him in a boat in the Nile when she couldn't hide him any longer. And he gets found by an Egyptian princess. The Egyptian princess adopts him. He grows up in the palace. He's educated. He learns to read and write. He knows how to behave and conduct himself in the palace. He is an adopted prince. He's protected. He doesn't have to 
build the pyramids or whatever it is that the Hebrews were doing for the Egyptians. He doesn't have to try to uh, work in the fields or any of those things. But when he's 40 years old, somehow he wakes up to the idea that this is his people to whom this is happening. And he goes out and he sees an Egyptian slave master beating on a Hebrew and he kills the Egyptian guy. Now he thinks he's gotten away with it, but the very next day he goes back out. Now he's ready. He's going to rally the troops. He's going to get them all on his side. And the Hebrews are mad at him. What are you thinking? You, this is not, this can't work. Well, is like, wow. Okay. If, if it's not going to work one person, I just have, I need to get out of here. So he takes off. Because he knows he's going to be in trouble for murder. He's gone for 40 years. He gets married. He becomes a shepherd. And he's working out in the fields. Doing nothing. Just doing life. And all of a sudden, God shows up. God reveals himself to Moses in a way that he's never revealed himself in history up to this point. He reveals himself as the I am. This is one of the most profound and incredible revelations of God's self in all of scripture. I am is not ever in the past tense. I am is not in the future tense. I am is here and now and always is. It's one of the statements Jesus uses about himself in John that gets him into trouble. And it is one of the most powerful two-word descriptions of any deity anywhere. I am, God tells Moses, the one who goes before and behind and is with us everywhere is the I am. You see, God had always intended to use Moses for rescuing the Hebrews, but God's plan was a little more awe-inspiring than a simple revolution. God shows up as a burning, not burning bush in the middle of a wilderness to reclaim and rescue his people through a guy who's 80 years old, who's left his homeland in shame, and who's now convinced that he is the worst possible choice. Moses isn't interested in saving anybody anymore. He just wants to work for his father-in-law and die in peace, and God says, nope. He says, I'm sending you back. You're going to go. You're going to stand in front of Pharaoh, and you're going to tell him that I'm telling him that he needs to let my people go. Moses finally does this with Aaron as the spokesperson. Aaron, who's his older brother, by the way. Moses is 80. Aaron is even older. Now they go back 
They stand in front of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, um, let's see, your God wants me to um, release all of my free labor, and um, yeah, no, that's not going to happen. And they go through this long song and dance where there's plagues and all of this happens back and forth. Moses says, let my people go. God does a miraculous thing. Pharaoh says, oh, let them go. They can go, fine. And then the thing stops. And Pharaoh changes his mind. This is like repeated ten times. Finally, Passover happens. God kills all of the Egyptian firstborn And Pharaoh finally says, go, take stuff with you, go, get out of here, we can't do this anymore. So they leave. This isn't six or seven people, this isn't us leaving the building in a fire situation, right? This isn't the fire alarm goes off and all of us in a nice little orderly fashion, we go down the steps and we go stand outside. This is a million people walking out of Dodge, walking into the wilderness, and God takes them in a very strange way. He takes them directly to a place where they're going to stand on the edge of a giant body of water, where there really is absolutely nowhere they can go. They're either going to go back to Egypt or go forward. And they get there, and when they get there about, you know, five or ten minutes later, Pharaoh's like, what was I thinking? Grabs his army and heads out. Now, the one thing the Israelites, the Hebrews, don't have is an army. They don't have any weapons, really. They might have some pitchforks and things, but they don't have much. So when the army gets there, they know they're doomed. And that is the place where we find them. A million people facing an Egyptian army on one side and a big giant body of water they can't move on the other. And they're like, we had this talk, Moses. We said we did not want to be rescued. And here we are. Thanks a billion, we now get to die in the desert. And Moses says, hang on. God didn't bring you out here to let you die. God brought you here because he wanted you to see the only way forward was with him. That's it. You can't get to the other side of the Red Sea without him. And so Moses says one of my favorite verses here. He says, God will fight for you. You need only be still. Sometimes we fight so hard for the things that we think we need. We fight.
fight so hard to have money and security and safety. And we encounter difficulty and challenges and we think of ways to solve them and ways to think around them. And some of those ways are good. We, we have tools like our brains to help us figure things out. But sometimes we need to take a moment and talk to God. And sometimes God is going to say to us, you don't have to fight this on your own. You don't have to deal, the, deal with this without me. I know this is way more than you can deal with. I know this is way bigger than you can handle, but I'm going to tell you something. I got this. God says, be still. Let me fight. Now, I got to tell you, God sets them free. He's, he puts them on this path. He puts them through the Red Sea. He puts the wall of water on either side. They walk through on dry land. The Egyptians follow them. The water comes back over the Egyptians. They get to the other side, and guess what? It is not rainbows and unicorns on the other side of that water either. There are still lots of things for the Hebrews to complain about. But one of the first things God does when they get to the other side, first they praise God. They send, they spend a bunch of time singing about the amazing thing that God has done for them. God sets it up for them and tells them, you're going to remember this every single year. You need to remember this. You know why God sets it up that way? Because we have short memories. I don't know if you know this, but people don't remember things very well. <laughs> Eyewitness accounts, the longer it goes between when something happened and when an eyewitness testimony happens, uh, the more likely it is that the person is not going to remember what they saw. That's just how we are. So God sets it up and he says, you need to remember this. All the way along, as they move forward, God sets in motion things to protect them and to help them, but they complain a lot. We're going to talk more about this when we get to our Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers pages, because those are the ones where we're going to talk about their desert time. But God takes them to the foot of Mount Sinai, and he gives them the law. But God makes it very clear that the way that they have gotten to this point is by God's hand. They could not do this themselves. They could not get there without him. And that is always true of God's rescue. God rescues us from all kinds of things. And when God rescues us, God rescues us. And God makes it abundantly clear that it is God's rescue that we can trust in.
So every week, we recap what it means to say that God loves us. Because remember, our tour through the Bible is about how we see God's love for us in every page. So what does it mean to say God loves? God loved us enough to create us, to form us from the dust. God loved us enough to let us fail, to let us choose our own way over God's, to let us chain ourselves to sin and defeat and heartbreak and sorrow and death. God loved us enough to provide a rescue, a way back through wanderers, murderers, adulterers, defaulters, promise breakers, foreigners, strangers, and lovers. God loved us enough to show us mothers, judges, kings, and prophets who loved and spoke for God and kept reminding us of the promise of redemption. God loved us enough to show us how evil and wrong continually mess things up and how obedience to God fosters holiness and bestows blessing. God loved us enough to send us Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, to preach and live peace, grace, hope, joy, and love. God loved us enough to see Jesus rejected, to see him die, to see him buried. God loved us enough to raise Jesus from the dead and send the Holy Spirit to remind us of all we have in him and empower us to live like him. God loved us enough to want us to live like Jesus, an abundant life infused with all the fruit of the Spirit, redeemed, free, loved. God loved us enough to still let us choose our destiny. God loved us enough to promise the hope of forever, of resurrection from the dead, and judgment. God loved us enough. God loves us enough. God will always love us enough. For God so loved the world. God loves you. God wants you to know it. God wants you to live in it. God wants you to be able to love others because you know you are loved. And God's love is expressed to us every week most tangibly as we gather at this table. The son who died and yet lives gave everything so we could know the depth of God's love. So come, drink the wine, eat the bread. Know you are loved. God loves you. Let us go. Love the world with him.